recording. Start a recording again to make sure we're right. So we're. I gather we got through that um, that question we asked. I gather you were able to get through that because you were able to stay on. I was the one that was lost for a brief second. Let's hope we we hold everything holds together here just long enough for us to get through the remainder. Um, I'm just checking to make sure that everything's worked. <laughs> Apologies, folks. That does happen. Uh, it wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't be live if if it didn't. Um, yeah. uh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, looks like everything's back to normal. Okay. Um, all right. We're all good. <laughs> uh, thank God. Thank goodness. Um, all right. Question two. Uh, some something similar uh, from Emma. Uh, what psychological battles do coaches face today? Oh, great question. Can, uh, where is this question coming from? Do we have that? Emma in the UK. So she's oh, up. Emma again. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, some of the psychological battles. What an interesting question. Um, you know, the way that I interpret that question um, is, is uh, in regards to our own, as coaches, our own psychological approach, our own um, psychological prep, our, our preparation, our mindset our mind training, that sort of thing. Um, I, I think, you know, I know for myself anyway, I can say that, um, you know, uh, we all struggle with doubt and we all struggle with, um, you know, dealing with uh, failure or dealing with success and always, you know, navigating the waves that are, um, you know, constantly just churning, right? Like it's it's never a steady it's never an easy, you know, canoe trip across a lake. Uh, this thing that we do, it's always um, rough waters. And a lot of times that's a challenge for us as coaches, right? Psychologically, it can affect us in a lot of different ways. I think that a battle, if, you know, to use that terminology, I think that we face is just to make sure we stay in a positive space, that we stay uh, engaged and, and productive and in, in trying to help our teams get better. Um, cause it can be, it can be a real challenge, not just when we might struggle, uh, but also when we're succeeding, how to stay focused and, um, you know, stay true to the, to the grind that has put us into that position to begin with. Oftentimes the first time that we, you know, kind of get to that level of success, um, you know, I always, I always try to remind myself when I, when I taste it or to remind other coaches when they tasted that. You know, the, the people that are, you know, celebrating you right now, um, if they weren't in your circle already, um, then they're, they're really just, you know, like a moth attracted to light. Um, and at the moment, your light is shining. And so here come all of these people. Um, but if the light turns out, then they're going to disappear. Um, and, you know, to try and keep the focus on the people that have been in your corner, that have been in your circle, um, and to keep your mindset, you know, uh, focused on trying to help your team get better. So I, I think psychologically, um, there's just a lot going on for us to, to manage a lot going on for us to, um, to, to remember that self-care is very important for us. We're, we're naturally probably like givers, um, more so than we are, you know, takers, so to speak. So, you know, remember yourself, uh, remember to take care of yourself. And um, practice some, um, 
some habits of self-care, whether that's meditation, yoga, prayer, uh, exercise, um, okay, uh, reading, reflection, journaling, you know, mindfulness, whatever the sort of the recipe is that we we uh, we each need to figure out that works for us. Um, definitely, mental health and uh, uh, is very important, and that leads into all of these sort of um, you know challenges that psychologically we have to prepare our minds uh, to face. Yeah. All right. Um, moving right along, we've managed to. Hopefully, there's no more. Uh, there's no more problems. I'm. I'm. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> uh, this is a question from Heather in North Carolina. You're winning the game by a lot. How do you, as a coach, approach the rest of the game? Should you be instructing your team to t- to back off or keep going? Great question. Uh, very, very real question that we we face. Like that is a, there's no, there's some theory to it, but it's real practical, you know? Um, so in my, in my experience, what I have found is that there is, there's always two sides to the coin. The first side of the coin is you want to respect the spirit of the game and you want to respect the spirit of competition. Um, sometimes that means, uh, and depending on the sport, it's going to look different, but sometimes that means um, making certain decisions which uh, reduce, you know, the the impact on the other team, uh, and that's that is showing some sportsmanship um, in the sense of you know it's probably like that. For example, in basketball, we've had some games here uh, recently where you know it would be probably possible for us to get to the basket every time, shoot a wide open shot, right? Like we were just that much better than the opponent in that particular situation. And on the one hand, you want to respect the spirit of the game and respect uh, your opposition, not only by finding ways to um, to maybe um, reduce uh, the impact on them in the same way, particularly in ways that are so obvious. Um, but on the other side of the coin, you also should be respecting your opponent by continuing to compete and by continuing to play um, hard and to be uh, focused on um, on the aspects of the game that are about you, right? And so for us, again, in basketball, that's about continuing to be in a defensive stance, continuing to be connected defensively, to, to rebound the basketball, to challenge shots, um, you know, to share the ball offensively and to move the basketball around the perimeter and in, in, into the interior and back out again and those sorts of things. Um, if, if you've been doing one thing that has led to just constant success and that's why you're up big, do something else, uh, try something else, work at something else, improve your team. Um, and also you're teaching them how to be respectful in the moment, how to show good sportsmanship. But remember it's, there's two sides to that coin. Your opponent doesn't want pity. Okay. They don't want pity. They don't want someone to just sort of back off and, and, and no longer compete with them. But that doesn't mean that you don't compete in different ways, that you can't compete in different ways. And, and I think that's what our challenge as coaches is, is to find that balance, um, you know, between the two sides of the coin. And I, I know for myself, I coach my players hard throughout the entire game. Um, and one of my common sort of things that I repeat to them you know, incessantly, I'm sure to their mind 
is, you know, play the game, not the score, right? So if you're doing the right things in terms of playing the game, the score will eventually reflect whatever it needs to reflect in terms of how the two teams match up. Um, but whether we're down big or up big, we play the game. We don't play the score. So we're continuing to try and, and get the job done to the best of our ability. And sometimes that job just changes uh, based on the decisions that you can make, you know, in terms of, uh, of how to attack the opponent or how to defend the opponent and those sorts of things. So I think that's a really good question. And I, I really challenge coaches to um, have a plan for that too. Like give some time, give some thought to, you know, what are you going to do when you're down? I'll stick with basketball. If, if you're down 30, you know, how are you coaching? How, how are you reacting to that? And if you're up 30 or 40, how are you reacting to that? How are you coaching? You know, preparation is the best, is the best way to, to make sure that you are ready to, to, to be effective in those situations. And I guess the question that sort of ties into that, um, this is from John in Ohio, so he's in the US, um, and, and it's an interesting, again, probably an interesting question. It's more of a philosophical one. Um, do you believe that there should be a mercy rule in junior sports, in all junior sports? Personally, my opinion is that the mercy rule is going to be different uh, based on the type of sport, based on, you know, the age of the athletes. Um, kind of a universal rule is, um, I think, counterproductive uh, because the rule shouldn't be the same in every situation because every situation is going to be different. And by situation, I mean, what kind of sport is it? Um, you know, for example, uh, you know, in, 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 in basketball, you know, if a team is up by, you know, whatever the number is, maybe the clock doesn't stop. Um, you know, maybe uh, the defense isn't allowed to, especially at younger levels where the kids, you know, they might not handle the ball very well. They turn it over at the drop of a hat, um, you know, and all it really takes at a 12U or 13U level or 10U is to have a couple of kids that are a bit more athletic and a bit more physically literate um, to be able to, to kind of run up the score. Um, I think it is reasonable in those situations to have a, a quote unquote mercy rule, which says, hey, you can't press up. Um, you've got to, you know, the, the offense has the ability to get the ball up the court. Uh, maybe it means you got a zone or maybe I, I don't know. Um, I, I think it I think it just requires uh, adjustment based on each league and each association or each organization that is conducting the competition. Um, I do think it is important, though, that. Um, at the same time as we want to, um, you know, in some ways provide opportunities for those less skilled teams and athletes to continue to develop, nobody is getting any better if they are, you know, turning the ball over as soon as the ball comes in and then they're repeating that and they're down by 50, they're not getting any better. So, how can we help the athletes and the teams improve by tweaking the way that we approach that? And that needs to be done in conjunction with coaches um, and done in, for example, in our league of which I'm the commissioner, um, we will have, you know, rules that, you know, conduct some of these decisions and they're done in concert with the clubs and in concert with the coaches so that, you know, we look at it as a collective thing. Okay, we might be winning this game, but part of my job as an opponent is to provide them an opportunity to get better. So 
it's one thing to say, well, they should just be better and this is a good lesson for them. I agree with that to a certain extent. But at the end of the day, let's get them better right now um, and, and provide some, some tools for that to happen within the game, within the game. Um, I don't believe in just ending competition. Um, you know, you know, let's just call the game. I don't believe in that game start game should finish. I think that's part of the, part of the, you know, the, the takeaways from sport is that when you start a job, you should finish the job. In this case, it's the game. Sometimes you're going to win. Sometimes you're going to lose. Sometimes it's going to be ugly. Sometimes it's going to be pretty. Um, but I think as, as coaches and, and organizers, we should always be looking to find ways to help every athlete that's out there get the most out of their experience. And that's not making everybody happy. You know, that's not like, well, everybody, everybody walks away happy and smiling. No, no one should be walking away smiling. If you're, if you're, if you're losing, but you shouldn't be walking away smiling. If you're winning up big either, um, you should be walking away content in the fact that you did your best and you, you approach the competition with, you know, the best, uh, effort and and working together with your team and whatever the scoreboard reads the scoreboard reads but we, we need to be working together with teams and coaches um you know in the interest of the athletes that's that that's my opinion on that question well, I'm, I'm conscious we could lose the internet again i hope we don't but um uh, we have a question from kieran and it wouldn't be a show without kieran asking the question um Dave, as a coach, do you prefer players who can play more than one position or but not as good in each position or a player who is good in only one position? Yeah, excellent question. And, and I'm sure it'll be different across the sports as well, but I'll stick to my sport because uh, I know it the best. I think that at particularly at, at youth and developmental levels, I think uh, the Swiss Army knife approach is not a bad thing. I think... Uh, everybody being able to, to do a number of different things um, is, is a good development model. Uh, personally, I know that at higher levels, of course, there are specialists that become you know, very important to the success of a team at professional or senior levels. Um, and they are, you know, they're, they're very good at a particular aspect of the game or at, a, at one position um, within, uh, within the game. Um, but I think at, at a youth level, it's important for everyone to develop their um, broad base of skills, um, you know, because honestly, we don't know what their future is going to look like. We don't know if they're going to hit a growth spurt at 17 or 16 or, or, or whatnot. We don't know if, if um, you know, suddenly over time, they're going to come into their body. And, and the next thing you know is they can do a, a bunch of things that they weren't able to do when they were 14 or 15. And if we pigeonhole them, uh, you know, too early because it's simpler for coaches to do that. And, and, you know, maybe that's a, uh, how it used to be done. Um, then we're just, we're hurting the athlete, right? Like we're, we're not, we're not helping their development. We're hurting their development and that's not what we should be doing. So I think ultimately, um, you know, my personal preference is, uh, for players that are multidimensional on both the offensive and the defensive end, um, in basketball, what that means is players that can handle the ball, shoot the ball, uh, pass the ball. Um, they're effective offensively from different positions on the floor. Uh, defensively, it means they're, you know, they, they are uh, adaptable. They can guard in particular in different situations. They're not 
sort of limited to guarding on the ball, uh, you know, on, on the block, say, like it really a lot of times it means our, our smaller players need to be able to physically leverage their, um, their center of gravity to guard on the block against perhaps bigger players or to, to guard against bigger players on the glass means uh, bigger players need to be mobile enough and uh, have the ability uh, to be a step ahead of the, of the smaller perimeter players, you know, so it's this multi-dimensionality that matters to me um, and the way that I look at the game. Um, although it's undeniable that specialists are a big part of, um, of what it takes to win at the highest level three-point shooters, guys that come in, they run to the corners, they catch and shoot, you know, they, they do a, a decent job, um, you know, defensively uh, are important, right? Like that's a real thing. Guys get paid a lot of money to do that. Um, there are a lot of, uh, you know, big players, uh, centers or, or whatnot in, in the way you might think of them, but they're, you know, rim protectors and screen and rollers. And, you know, they might not be able to step outside of 15, 18 feet and shoot the ball effectively, but they're very good at protecting the rim. They're very good at finishing at the basket, right? So there is a, a mix, but personally, uh, particularly for those developmental coaches out there, the, the multi, multi-dimensional aspect of, of youth development, I think is very important. Okay, well, we, we, well, we'll try to get to one, maybe two more questions here. I'll see how we go. Certainly one, definitely. Uh, apologies, folks out there. I know a lot of you have asked questions, but... We've had some technical problems and I'm a little bit conscious that those technical problems might be on their way back to bite again on us here if we, if we don't, you know, if we're not careful. Um, one question that's come in. And you know what, Jerome, we'll, we'll, we'll save we'll, we'll save all of these and, and I guarantee that we'll get to them. Yeah, we certainly will. We certainly will. We'll come back. We'll do it again for sure. We'll come back and we'll go over them again. We'll go back to the ones that we've missed. Uh, one last question. Definitely, this one is a good one. Um, and, and this is coming from Philip in Sydney. Uh, how would you handle difficult parents as a coach? Ah, great question. Um, okay, well, you know, I'm a coach, but I'm also a parent. Uh, and uh, and many of us all, right? Uh, many of us are also parents. And so I, when I became a parent, it certainly changed my um, my approach to parents and the, the way that I interacted with parents, the way that I answered their questions or, or sort of the, op the openness that I had. Obviously, I have a bit of a different perspective on being a sports parent because I am in sport and I, I see behind the curtain and I know how the sausage is made. So obviously, I, I do have some different perspectives that the typical parent might not have. Um, and so I recognize that, but I think generally speaking, you know, honesty is the best policy. Um, I don't think that parents, um, are, you know, able to, or should be able to, uh, exert an, an undue amount of influence or an undue amount of pressure on, on coaches. Um, it starts with transparency and, and, and truth. Uh, to me. So what that could look like is going to be different if you're working in a club or in a school or whatever the age of the athletes are as well. Um, obviously, COVID has changed some things because I think it's fairly typical in a lot of places for many parents, not all, but for many parents to watch training and to 
um, to do that sort of thing, which for indoor sports since COVID has that has not been possible, uh, as spectators have been mostly limited in, in a lot of places. Um, but I I typically invite parents to be a part of the process, and I try to I try to talk with them. I try to give them information. Um, you know, they have access to the information that their children are getting. They have access to, um, you know, the uh, even even in some cases, the, the raw data. Uh, and what I mean by that is everybody wants to know why little Johnny isn't isn't shooting the ball more. Why is Johnny not shooting? Johnny's a good shooter. Well, maybe Johnny's a good shooter at home in, in, in the driveway, but maybe Johnny hasn't translated that into competition shooting yet. Right. And when you're competing, you're playing to win um, and you're playing to to move the needle for the whole team to grow. But you're you, if you're in a competition, you're trying to win a game. Um, so if Johnny is is shooting 22 percent, um, then, yeah, he's probably not going to be shooting all that much. And sometimes having just being able to. Oh, wow. He he's two out of ten. He was he, he was. He was two out of 10 yesterday at practice. And for the last five practices, he hasn't cracked 25%. Um, oh, I, I get that. You know what? I'm, I'll, 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 I'll encourage him to go out and get more reps. Fantastic. Now you've got a parent that is uh, engaged. So, you know, the, the type of difficulty that a difficult parent brings is, I mean, could be anything. Um, they could be rude. They could be demanding. They could be, um, arrogant, um, just like all of us could be. Um, so I think at the end of the day, setting a clear um, standard of expectation for parents, setting a, a clear uh, process for dialogue with parents and families. And I, I like to think of, of families more so than parents, um, because an individual parent who, you know, might be difficult so to speak or might be presenting some difficulty you know it doesn't necessarily mean that there is difficulty with the entire family and and the relationships that i like to have with an athlete's support group is with their families as a whole hmm. um because rest assured it's the same problem in university um you know it's the same problem even in the pros where you know, whether it's uh, the, a father or a mother or it's an uncle or it's a, uh, a family relation of some nature that, you know, might might be just stepping outside of the norm. Um, it happens everywhere. And I would also say that stepping outside the norm doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Like sometimes the people that ask questions that make noise are an opportunity for you to get better. Um, so if someone is, is questioning something, try not to be defensive about it. Try to say, hey, you know what? I, I, that's a good question. Let me think about that. Let me reflect on that. And as long as you've set out a, a sort of a clear way, a process of communication, then people can engage with you in a way that is not, you know, automatically uh, antagonistic, right? Um, that's a lot of work. Uh, it's not it's not easy. It's not simple. And it's certainly not a given that everyone's going to buy in. Um, but I think that I think it's it's naive of us to think that we do not need to be proactive in our engagement with families. 
Um, and uh, it can be frustrating uh, and it can be really, you know, tiresome uh, at times, but it can also be incredibly rewarding uh, as, as a coach. It can be incredibly helpful for the athletes. Um, and frankly, um, when I speak to parents, I, I speak to them as we are a team. They and the coaching staff are a team. And the purpose of our team is to help your son or daughter um, get better, enjoy their experience, and uh, progress through their season or their, you know, whatever it is that context is. We have a goal as a team and let's work together. And you know what? Most of the time, unless someone is just antagonistic as a rule um, in their lives, you know, most of the time, good natured engagement yields some positive results. So I, I would say definitely be proactive and, and engaging with parents and try to view every challenge or problem that a parent brings forward as, as a real opportunity to get better. Well, thank you again, David. Um, all the questions that have been submitted and all the questions that have been submitted online, we will do again. Uh, next week's show, we will come back and we'll touch those questions because the reality is hopefully next week we won't have any issues. Today, the technical difficulties have been caused by a power outage here in Perth or here in, Green here in Greenfield is where I am, which means that's resulted in me losing the internet for a period of time and there's some issues with stability around that. So we... You know, we normally we'd like to be able to, but unfortunately things don't are not looking as good as they should be. So we, you know, we're just conscious of that. So once again, thank you, David, for participating. And we will, to everyone who submitted a question, we will get to those questions, and we will, we will make sure we cover them for sure. Um, thank you again for being a part of the show this week, and look forward to having you again next week for the Thinking Coach. Thank, thanks, Jerome, and and if I if I can just really quick before we go, I, I just want to say that today is September the thirtieth. Um, and uh, in Canada, it is uh, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, uh, where um, it's the first national day uh, for that. And if it's, a, it's a holiday, a federal holiday. And so many of us have been uh, you know, off work. And uh, it's a day to commemorate um, the lasting impact and the legacies of the residential school system um, in Canada. And uh, we, you know, we, you know, it's, it's obviously a difficult day um, for, uh, for many of our Indigenous peoples and for many families across the country. And for those of us that are not uh, from this land originally, it's just a good uh, time for us to really reflect and to think about the types of actions and steps that we can take to address, um, you know, these, uh, these very real impacts and these very real experiences that continue to um, to leave a scar on on our on our country, um, so I just want to take a moment to to recognize that, um, and um, and to say that uh, you know we are we are all in this together. Um, and you know I, I I attended a workshop and I listened to a, an Indigenous elder speak yesterday, and um, he really he really touched my my soul, frankly. Um, with uh, with the wisdom that he shared, and, and the one thing that that he did say, I'd, I just want to pass on to everyone out there, is that 
you know, as, as we are all connected to each other and we're all connected to, to the land that we are on together, um, we also share uh, a sacredness and, and we are all sacred in, 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 uh, in our own way and, and we need to be there for each other. And so my, my, uh, my hope is that we are, we are there for each other and, and as we are there for, for coaches and for the people within our, our spheres and our, within our circles, um, there are a lot of other people out there for whom, um, you know, I have, I have an open hand, I have an open heart. Um, and, um, I just wanted to take a moment to, to recognize uh, that today is in fact our national day for truth and reconciliation and, um, for justice. And, um, I just wanted to, um, to say that. Well, thank you for that, David, and, and never a true sentiment said. And um, thank you again, everyone who's participated. Thank you again to those that have asked questions. As we say, we will get to those questions uh, again. We will touch on them. Um, so thank you again, David. Thank you again to everyone who's, who's tuned in. And we'll catch you all again next week. <laughs>